All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you that you've allowed us to gather around the word of God, your truth. Lord, I pray, I first of all thank you for so many that really love the truth and receive it like the Thessalonians received Paul's words, not as the word of man, but as the word of God, as it really is. Lord, I pray that you would reactivate some of our appetites, for there are some who will not tolerate sound doctrine, but they have itching ears, looking for teachers who will give them whatever they desire, rather than pure truth. Lord, you said in your word that if we search after you with all of our hearts, that we would find you. Though you are not far from any one of us, because in you we live and we move and we have our being. And so, Lord, satisfy the appetites tonight, the spiritual appetites of your people. Give to us what we need, for so often we are led astray by what we want. You know what we need, and we're so grateful that we're in your hands, Lord. Lord, give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. I love revenge. Now, I heard a few, but you do too. I've just admitted it. You love it as well. It's part of your old nature. There's something satisfying in the flesh, in the corrupt, sinful nature that rejoices when we see others get what's coming to them. Somehow we think, well, we're not supposed to admit that. You know, as Christians, we're never supposed to admit. But it's true. We can relate, though it's probably not written or underlined in your scriptures. David was praying to God, and I am so thankful that God chose to record everything so honestly. David prayed for his enemies, and there was a point when he was just gut-level honest. And uh, probably you went, when you read what David said as well. He said, break their teeth, Lord, in their mouths. Can you imagine praying like that? That's what David felt like, and that kind of information is safe with God. God isn't going to do it uh, right away. <laughs> there will come a time when God will judge the wicked. Until then, God is very patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But David's heart was broken. He wanted revenge. And he had the kind of relationship with his God that he could share anything that he felt. God already knew he felt that way anyway. Why hide it from God? There were three hell's angels. And they drove their hogs, extended forks, springer front ends. They drove it up to a restaurant. They walked inside, pushed both doors open. And everybody knew they were there. They stood there in leather jackets and chains and smoking cigarettes. And they pushed their way through the cafe. And they noticed one truck driver all by himself in the corner eating breakfast. They thought, this will be fun. 
And so they walked over to the truck driver, and the first biker took the man's orange juice and just tipped it over, and it spilt all over the table and onto his lap. Now, they wanted to pick a fight, and the truck driver was wise enough to pick up on that, but he was also wise enough to realize there's three of them and one of me. So he took a deep breath, and he ignored it, and he began eating his breakfast. Second biker, seeing that it didn't faze him, took the man's coffee, picked it up, poured it on his head. Hot, black coffee with cream and sugar all over the man's hair. The man got a little riled, but quickly picked up his napkin, dabbed his head to take away the moisture. He didn't want to pick a fight with three bikers. Again, he knew it's futile to let my emotions get away with me. The third biker, saying, man, I've got to do something to get this guy to pick a fight with us, took the man's pancakes, bacon, and eggs that were soft eggs and smeared it all over the man's chest, just pushed it on his chest, down his abdomen. They're waiting for this guy to spring up at any time. The guy wouldn't do it. Rather, he got up to his feet, dusted himself off with a little dignity that he had left, put the napkin down, wiped his mouth, went over to the cash register, paid his bill, and walked out. And, of course, these three bikers were very disappointed. They didn't get their fight. The man drove off in his truck, and one biker said to the rest of his other two of his friends, I don't believe it, man. This guy, he's not very much of a man. The waitress overheard it looking out the window said, Yeah, you know what? He's not very much of a truck driver either because he just ran over three motorcycles. <laughs> now, the reason you can laugh at that is because there's something in your nature that goes, Yeah, get what's coming to them. So for Jesus on the cross to say, Father, forgive them, should arrest your attention because it is so different from what you feel and what I feel, from what we would do. The Greek language, as we said a couple of weeks ago, indicates a continual action. He continually said, Father, forgive them. Perhaps when they put the cross, the patibulum, the upper cross beam on his shoulders, and he marched toward Golgotha, he was saying, Father, forgive them. As they whipped him and he fell on the road, oh, Father, forgive them. As he came to the place called Golgotha, and they stretched him out on that cross and put spikes in his wrists and in his feet, Father, forgive them. As they mocked and jeered him, Father, forgive them. And in verse 33, though we're backtracking a bit, when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said. Notice that. Then. When man had done his worst, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. When the worst crime of history was committed and they strung the Son of Man up on that Roman gibbet. Father, forgive them. Now, Jesus, of course, had the power, did he not, to come off the cross? He told Peter in the garden when Peter took the sword and wanted to cut the guy's head off, missed and got his ear. 
He said, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels right now. I could just snap my fingers and 72,000 of these beings could come at my command. Now think of the damage 72,000 angels could do. We know that in the Old Testament, an angel was able to wipe out 185,000 Assyrians. In the book of Acts chapter 12, the angel of the Lord struck Herod Agrippa and he was eaten by worms and died. Imagine what 100 or what 72,000 of them could do. Wow. But because man's greatest need is forgiveness and because for Jesus to come off of the cross would mean the world would be lost, it was expedient. And it was the heart of God to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and they cast lots. Father, forgive them. Now, in order for that prayer to be answered, you must receive God's forgiveness. That is not a blanket, paint with a broom approach. Just because Jesus prayed this, that doesn't mean that the world is forgiven for their sins. Man will be judged based upon what he did with Jesus Christ, the sin-bearer. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John chapter 16, of sin because they do not believe in me. The sin issue is what you do with Jesus. For this prayer of forgiveness to be able to be answered in your life, you have to receive that forgiveness. You have to say, like the prodigal son, I'm a sinner, and I accept your forgiveness. I receive what Jesus did on the cross for me personally. I give my life to the Savior. That has to happen, or this prayer in your life will not be answered. Back in 1829, there was a record of a man, William Sutton or other. I don't remember his last name. That wasn't his last name. But he was involved in robbing the United States mail, and he killed a person trying to get the money that was in the mail. He was arrested. He was convicted. After he was tried, found guilty, and they gave him the death sentence. And there he was in jail, on death row, waiting to be executed. Some of his friends got together and persuaded President Andrew Jackson to spring him free, to give him a pardon, to release him. Andrew Jackson wrote a release to William something or other. And they told him. They came into a cell. They said, I don't know how they did it, but your friends have finagled Andrew Jackson to give you pardon. You're free. The man said, I don't accept. Now, President Jackson, when he heard about this, was so perplexed, he didn't know what to do, so he gave the decision to the United States Supreme Court. And the Chief Justice Marshall had to preside over the case. And his decision was this. A pardon is simply a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon the acceptance of it or the rejection of it. And so, William Sutmerother was executed. There the pardon was, sitting on the desk, 
but he never cashed it in. It was given to him, but he never received it. Now, forgiveness has been made possible for you. But that promise for some of you lays on a desk, God's desk in heaven. The price has been paid. But some of you haven't cashed it in. You said, no. And you're the same ones who say, God isn't fair to judge me. Now, God has extended pardon to you. Will you take it or not? No, I won't take it. Then blame yourself. Father, forgive them. By the death on the cross, the Father, God, was able to forgive all people if they call upon the name of the Lord. The people stood looking on. Even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We mentioned last time that this was a gutsy prayer because he was the only guy saying this. The crowd was jeering him. The soldiers were jeering him. The leaders of the Jews were jeering him. I think it's Matthew or Mark, one of the other synoptic gospels, say that both of these prisoners chimed in and rebuked Jesus Christ. So there was some pretty rapid change of theology in this one prisoner's mind on the cross. Perhaps just seeing this man dying the way that he died. Nobody ever died like this. Everybody complained, get me off of here. I didn't do it. It's not my fault. I'm a victim. But there Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Who is this man? What prompts a man in this time of suffering to extend such gracious words? Perhaps he had heard of Jesus. But whatever it was, he changes his tune and he rebukes the other guy who is rebuking Jesus Christ. The amazing thing to me, and I've always been amazed, is that with such little information and at such a time, this man, this thief, could turn to Jesus and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If you examine that statement, it's an incredible statement of faith. Now, you could expect such a statement if he was on the hill around Galilee when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, or if he had binoculars out there when Jesus was walking on the water and he saw it. You could understand him saying, Ooh, you're the Lord. Hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Can you imagine trusting a man in such a weakened, dying condition on the cross, not moving from that place, to say, Lord, and acknowledge that he would have a kingdom? Unusual. Certainly words of faith. And again, gutsy words. He's the only guy doing it. The Bible says the fear of man does what? It brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. You know what it's like. You want to say something. You want to stand for the gospel wherever you work or among your family or in your community. And 
what will they think if I say something right now? They're going to think I'm nuts. I'm a fanatic. I'm this religious kook. If I make a stand, what will those who respect me think? My respect will be lost. I can't make a stand. The fear of man can bring a snare. But this man didn't care. He said it anyway. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Once again, Jesus didn't say, Now, wait a minute. I'd like to let you into my kingdom, but first you must be baptized according to my church. You must, we have to give you time. You have to keep the Ten Commandments. You have to prove that you're saved. Now, why didn't Jesus say that? Well, the obvious reason, there wasn't enough time. Death was soon upon him. But I think there's another reason. God furnishes us in, for us in this man a striking demonstration that salvation is not by works, but by faith. By you trusting in Jesus. In that simple statement, he recognized Jesus was the Lord. He didn't say, remember me, if you ever come into that kingdom, I've heard people say you talk about. But it was a statement of assurance when you come into your kingdom. A statement of faith. And that faith, that simple faith in his heart, this was certainly a deathbed or conversion or a foxhole conversion. But Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You are valuable to God, not because of a talent or a gift, not because you can preach or teach or sing or dance or... You're good with numbers. God doesn't love you only when you serve him because you work for him. Your value to God lies in the fact that God created you in his image, period. You are valuable to God. Boy, I hope that that just sets some of you free. You're thinking, oh, well, God would really love me if I got involved. God would love you to get involved with his church, with his work. But you know, if you never get involved, God will still love you. If you never gave a dime to his work, God will still love you. God's love is not predicated. If you're a good boy or a bad boy, a good girl or a bad girl, he loves you regardless. It's unconditional. Now, shouldn't that love prompt us and just blow our minds and make us want to serve the Lord? But that's the key. We're motivated, hopefully, out of God's love, not guilt. Some people love guilt. It is a fine motivator. You can make people cringe in the pew. You rotten Christians, you ought to be doing this and that. Don't you know that God's kingdom is going to waste and you're to blame? And you can make people do things by guilt. And it's funny, but some people seem to love it. Amen. Amen. That's right. Preach it. Now, let's get balanced here. God loves you unconditionally. And this thief was accepted unconditionally by his faith in Jesus Christ, not by his works because he was hanging on that cross. But, again, faith without works is dead. There will be some fruit that does manifest itself in the life of a believer. There was a pastor who was having a conversation with a man in his church. 
And the man used this as his excuse to not do anything. And so the pastor asked him, have you become a member of our church? And the man said, no, I haven't become a member of your church, reverend. As I notice in the Bible, the thief on the cross, he never joined a church. Well, are you involved in doing something for other people within the church? No, I'm not. The thief on the cross was never involved in helping other people, and he was accepted. I see. Well, have you ever given any of your time or your money to the church or to missions? No, I haven't, Pastor, but you know the thief on the cross, he never gave any of his time or money to the church or to missions, and he was accepted. Well, do you ever pray for the needs of the fellowship? No, I don't, Reverend, but you know the thief on the cross, he never prayed for the needs of any fellowship, and he was accepted. By this time, the preacher was getting a little bit ruffled, and he said, you know, there is, however, one difference between you and that thief on the cross. Oh, he took the bait. What's that? The thief on the cross, he was a dying thief. You are a living thief. Had this man lived past the crucifixion, being absolutely forgiven by God, accepted by God, loved by God as he was, he would have had time to manifest the fruits of the Spirit. You abide in the vine in Jesus Christ and fruit will be manifest. But he obviously didn't have the time. The demonstration here is that he was saved completely as an act of grace through the agency of his faith, his trust in Jesus Christ. Not by works, lest any man should boast. No, 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 you say, you have to be baptized and believe. Well, then that would be by works. That would be faith plus the work of your being baptized. Now, baptism is important. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But you're not saved by baptism. Baptism demonstrates that you have believed unto salvation. But you're not saved by it. Today you will be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. That is, from between 12 o'clock noon and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, darkness swept over the land of Jerusalem. What a contrast to when Jesus was born. Do you remember when Jesus was born? Light covered the countryside. The glory of the Lord shone round about the shepherds and they were afraid. But here we see darkness for three hours. The Greek word for darkness is eklipo, where we get the word eclipse. But don't get in your mind that it's a natural eclipse. It is a total kind of overwhelming supernatural darkness. Now, I've read the uh, commentators, and some taters are more common than others, but uh, these people who may comment on the New Testament offer all sorts of explanations for this. They say, well, it was probably one of those uh, Middle Eastern dust storms that covered people from seeing very clearly, and the dust overwhelmed them. Or it was an eclipse of the sun, or they offer explanations. As I see it, it was a supernatural darkness that was given by God because of the death of his son. In fact, the little bits and pieces that I've been able to uncover show that it was a darkness that was well attested to. Origen, one of the uh, early church fathers who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, wrote to a Roman historian about this darkness he said, which event 
is preserved in your archives and written about in your annals and saved until this day. I haven't found the account, but I have read one historian who said that Pilate made a written report and included this period of darkness that it was from noon to three o'clock to the Roman emperor in Rome. Tertullian also mentions it, quoting an historian and writing to another that there was darkness over all the land. It was a real kind of a darkness, and I believe that it was a darkness of judgment. Did you know that the Babylonian Talmud, that is the commentary of the Jews on the Old Testament and their rituals, the Babylonian Talmud has a few writings in it that say God reserves literal physical darkness as judgment when man commits a gross and unusual sin. And the scripture that they use is the ninth plague in Egypt when there was darkness over all the land for three days. Here it's three hours. Three days and it was felt. Well, this is the worst sin of all, right? To take Jesus, as Peter said in Acts chapter 2, and by wicked hands crucify and put him on the cross. Darkness is judgment. In the book of Revelation, part of the judgment in the tribulation period will be darkness over the earth. In fact, I forget the chapter, but the fifth bowl, it says, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his entire kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. A darkness that gave them grief, I think, in judgment. Joel, speaking about the day of the Lord, said it's a day of darkness and a day of gloominess. And here, as sort of a precursor to the final judgment, there is darkness over all of the land. In verse 45, the sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in two. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. In the Old Testament, as a means of approaching God, God created the tabernacle. He didn't create it. He gave the idea to Moses, gave him really a blueprint. And um, Moses and the children of Israel built this odd structure. And it was odd. It was a building made out of cloth. Uh, they could take it and transport it portably throughout the desert. They did for 40 years. And uh, basically, there was a court with linen wall all the way around it, sacrifices, Blood sacrifices were enacted in the outer court. And the priesthood, the priests, the men would approach a room in the center of this tented courtyard called the holy place that measured 15 feet wide by 30 feet deep. And as they would walk into this room, on the right-hand side would be a table with 12 loaves of bread, each loaf representing one of the tribes of Israel. On the left-hand side in this room was a candlestick with seven branches with oil kept in it to illuminate the holy place. In front of them was a little golden altar of incense, and beyond that, at the end of the room, there was a thin cloth curtain called the veil that separated the holy place from another room, the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, some of you remember, was this wooden chest covered with gold 
And the lid of it was pure gold, and it had two angels, cherubim, whose wings stretched over this mercy seat, and blood was sprinkled on there. For a few hundred years, for about 500 years, the tabernacle was sort of the center of life spiritually. That gave way to the building of a temple. Solomon built his temple, and after that, Herod reconstructed the temple that Zerubbabel and a few others built after the captivity. Herod made this place huge. In fact, if you go to Israel with us, you can walk around the 40 acres of the court of the Gentiles that is still intact, most of it. 40 acres was that outer court. And they built this huge holy place and huge holy of holies. They put a veil in it that was not a thin curtain, but it was 60 feet high. Can you get that in your mind? The peak of this building here is about 37 feet. The drop ceiling brings it down to about 34 feet. So almost double the peak of this building, and that's how tall the curtain was. It was a pretty substantive curtain, several feet or several inches thick, uh, some have supposed. It is said that if you were to look at the temple from even the Mount of Olives, you could look all the way over and see part of that veil hanging down. Now, that veil had a message. The message is, warning, keep out. It didn't say that literally, but just try to go in. If you were to walk in, you could be killed. The Bible insinuates that even if you were a high priest who did not make the proper cleansing and have the right heart and you were to walk in on the only day allowable, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, if your heart wasn't right, you didn't go through the right sacrifices, that God could strike you dead. When Jesus died, that veil which says, everyone keep out except a representative, a mediator, was ripped. Sixty feet tall. A man didn't rip it. The scripture says it was ripped from top to bottom. God ripped it. God removed the barrier. It was God's message of saying, that lamb, my son, the lamb of God is the lamb which takes away the sin of the world. And you don't have to have a priest anymore. You don't need a mediator to represent you before God. My son has represented you before me and your sins can be washed away and you can come and have fellowship with me. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant in chapter 4 when he said, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and grace to help in our time of need. God's message is the veil has been removed. The high priest has gone in. Come closer. Come closer. Come to the very throne of God. Have intimate fellowship with God. What that means practically is when you just say, Lord God, I come to you. Immediately you received, your prayers are heard in the very presence of God. God didn't go, won't listen to you. You need a representative. You've got to talk to somebody who will talk to me. 
somebody that I like to listen to. You talk directly to God, God will receive you. The veil was ripped from top to bottom. Um, I have always been fond of Max Lucado's writings. One of his books, Six Hours, One Friday. He puts in there a story about a shepherd. He said, The bright noonday sun casts a common shadow for the Judean countryside. It's the black silhouette of a shepherd standing near his fat-tailed flock. He stares at the clear sky, searching for clouds. There are none. He looks back at his sheep. They graze lazily on a rocky hillside. An occasional sycamore tree provides shade. He sits on the slope and places a blade of grass in his mouth. He looks beyond the flock at the road below. For the first time in days, the traffic is thin. For over a week, a river of pilgrims has streamed through this valley, bustling down the road with animals. I have no explanation. With animals and loaded carts. For days he watched them from his perch. Though he couldn't hear them, he knew they were speaking a dozen different dialects. And though he didn't talk to them, he knew they were go- where they were going and why. They were all going to Jerusalem. And they were going to sacrifice their lambs in the temple. The celebration strikes him as a bit ironic. Streets jammed with people. Marketplaces full of the sounds of bleating of goats and selling of birds. Endless observances. The people relish the festivities. They awaken early and they retire late. They find a strange fulfillment in all of the pageantry, but not him. What kind of a god would be appeased by the death of an animal? Oh, the shepherd's doubts are never voiced anywhere except on the hillside. But on this day they shout. It isn't the slaughter of animals that disturbs him. It's the endlessness of it all. How many years has he seen the people come and go? How many caravans? How many sacrifices? How many bloody carcasses? Memories stalk him. Memories of uncontrolled anger, uncontrolled desire, uncontrolled anxiety. So many mistakes. So many stumbles. So much guilt. God seems so far away. Lamb after lamb, Passover after Passover. Yet, he says, I still feel the same. He turns his head and he looks at the sky. Will the blood of yet another lamb really matter? The shepherd stands staring at now a blackened sky. Only seconds before he had stared at the sun. Now there is no sun. The air is cool. The sky is black. No thunder, no lightning, no clouds. The sheep are restless. The feeling is eerie. The shepherd stands alone, wondering, listening. What is this hellish darkness? What is this mysterious eclipse? What has happened to the light? There is a scream in the distance. The shepherd turns toward Jerusalem. A soldier, unaware that his impulse is part of a divine plan, plunges the spear into the side. The blood of the Lamb of God comes forth and cleanses. The temple curtain is torn, ripped in two from top to bottom. Will the blood of another lamb yet matter? No, not of another little fat-tailed sheep, but the Lamb of God? Yes. As John said, he takes away the sin of the world. And the veil of the temple was ripped, 
And only that lamb can set us free from sin. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, remember, the guy writing this is a doctor. Luke is a physician. He knows about death. And he records this incident. And he records it very accurately. He had seen, no doubt, many people die. As a pastor, I have been at a lot of different deathbeds, and I have that unhappy duty of being with other people as their loved one dies. I've talked to people as they say their last words. There's often that death rattle in that last breath. Many don't want to go. They don't want to leave. But Jesus didn't have his life taken. He gave up his spirit, the scripture says. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Now, before we move on, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. A thing to note, every single time that Jesus addresses God on a personal level, he calls him Father. Way back when Jesus was 12 years old, he said to his mother, when they found him in the temple in Jerusalem, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Here on the cross, he says at the end, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus called God the Father 17 times. When Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper and gave the longest sermon he ever preached, he called God his Father 45 times. When he was in Gethsemane at the Passion, when he was crying out to God, he addressed God as his father six more times. The first thing he said on the cross was, Father, forgive them. His parting words, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. There was only one time when Jesus did not address God as his father, and that is when I believe the full force and brunt of sin was placed upon Jesus, and Jesus felt that separation with his father. That's when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now he returns to the language of intimacy, father. With that in mind, the fact that even during the worst moment of Jesus' life, when his life breath was leaving and he addressed God as his father, with that in mind, two questions we pose to ourselves. Number one, what is your relationship with God like? Is it distant? Is he the almighty, the good Lord? Or is he your personal Lord, your intimate heavenly father? Do you walk with him daily? Do you have sweet fellowship with Jesus, your Lord? Is he your father? Or is he just the God, the higher being? Second question. If God is your father on a personal level, what would it take to separate you from that relationship? Well, we know nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans chapter 8 tells us. But is there some experience that would cause you to say, I've had enough. I won't rely on you anymore as my father. Is there something that could be taken away that in your mind... That's enough. I, 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 my expectations were not met. 
I'm going to take my spiritual football and go home. Would the loss of a job do it? If you lose your girlfriend or boyfriend, would a disease that filled your body do it? Would the death of a loved one do it? What would it take to separate that relationship? On the cross, he returns, Father. So beautiful. In John chapter 6, you remember the story when Jesus shared some pretty hard sayings. They were not really seeker-friendly messages in John chapter 6. He talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, else you have no life in you. And they, some of the disciples said, well, these are pretty hard sayings. Who can accept it? Scripture says some of them got up and walked out and walked no more with Jesus. And so Jesus turned to his 12 friends, his apostles, and he said, will you also leave? And I love their response. The apostles said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Okay, so you feel like you've been let down. You've trusted God. Something has gone wrong, and now you're mad at God. I don't like it anymore. He's not going to be my father. Where else are you going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else has the promises that he's given you? I'm just going to go find myself. When you do, you won't be happy. When you discover who you really are. But when you discover who you are in Christ, forgiven, set free, his child, nothing like it. Where else would you go? So Jesus, even at the brink of the worst thing he's ever gone through in his life, after being separated in that moment from his father, returning now to the language of intimacy, Father, then he said, into your hands, I love this, wicked hands put him on the cross, wicked hands have beaten him, and now he's returning back to his father's hands. I commit my spirit. When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly, This was a righteous man. One of the other Gospels gives another sentence that he said. He said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, I got to admit, when I read this, I'm ruined for life. Because I forget which movie it's in, but in one of the movies of Jesus, they cast the centurion as John Wayne. Do you remember that? Was it the greatest story ever told or one of those movies about Jesus? And it, when I first saw it, it, just, it was the first movie I'd ever seen about the life of Jesus. And the, John Wayne, you know, kind of straddles up and looks up and says, Surely this was the Son of God. And the way he said it, it's like, <laughs> it ruins in part the experience when I read it. I think of him every time. Certainly this was a righteous man. It could be, we don't know, but it could be that this centurion was one of the centurions that was there when Jesus was arrested. He could have been part of the same cohort, arresting Jesus in the garden, leading him over to uh, the house of Caiaphas and eventually Pilate, and was there in all of the trials of Jesus. He could have been there when Jesus was flogged with a cat of nine tails on the back of Jesus. And the crown was put in his head. There for the crucifixion. 
seeing three hours of darkness, the earthquake that took place. All of that was spooky. It got his attention. He was putting things together, and he said, Surely this was a righteous man, or as the other Gospels also include, the Son of God. And the whole crowd who came together to see or to that sight, seeing what had happened or what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. I find that interesting. To beat your breast, is an, it's an emotional outcry of sorrow. It's like, oh, they would beat their breast, and it, it meant this is ripping me apart inside. But then it says they returned, business as usual. There's a lot of people who have responses like that, folks. They get emotional. They get all agitated. Oh, it's so sad. Oh, God is so good. But then it's like they forget about it. You know, James talked about those people, didn't he, who look in the mirror and see themselves, and they walk away and forget what they look like. So is every man who is simply a hearer of the word and not a doer, James said. But all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member. John tells us Joseph of Arimathea. He had not consented to their council. Indeed, he was from Arimathea. Well, here it says it. A city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where, never, uh, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. The women who had followed... Excuse me, the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how the body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Usually the bodies of victims, once they died, were given to the families. That was the custom, that was Jewish custom. The families would then attend to the body, making preparation and performing the burial. However, if it was death by crucifixion, the Romans would take the body and throw it in an open grave like the Jews were buried during the Holocaust in sort of an incinerator pit outside the area of Jerusalem. The Romans were not allowed to take the bodies off of the cross until... Death had occurred, and so often to expedite the death, since usually crucifixion would last a few days, the bones were broken to sort of collapse the lungs so that the person couldn't push up with his legs and take in any more air. They would suffocate to death in the last few minutes. But Jesus had already given up his spirit, and he was dead. Um, Joseph of Arimathea is an interesting character. John's gospel records that he was a secret disciple. He believed in Jesus. And there's indication that Nicodemus was also a secret believer. He came to Jesus by night. John's Gospel, chapter 19, tells us that both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are in charge of taking Jesus' body off. Probably what happened is Nicodemus stayed at the cross. Joseph went to Pilate, asked for the body to be buried in his tomb. They got back. Both of them took it off the cross and buried it in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no man had laid before. The day was the preparation. The Sabbath drew near. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. They observed the tomb and how the body was laid. 
Let me tell you about Jewish burial. First of all, you take 100 pounds, well, you, take, you find out about approximately how much the body weighs. You would take half of the body weight, approximately, in aloes and spices, aromatic spices. And then you would take pieces of cloth that were just a few inches wide. And the body would, first of all, be wrapped. It would be, the strips would be soaked in this jelly-like solution of myrrh and aloes, aromatic spices. And the cloth would then be wrapped tightly around the body from the ankles to the armpits. So it would form like a, a stripped cocoon. They took 100 pounds of these spices to wrap the body of Jesus from the ankles to the armpits. Then a separate napkin or a uh, cloth was wrapped over the head and then it was closed in by these strips. Now, some of you may be wondering about the Shroud of Turin. Is it the authentic burial garment of Jesus? The reason I don't think it is is not only because of its dating procedures and some of the scientific things that surround it, but also because it doesn't reflect the Jewish form of burial at that particular time in history. And does it matter? It's interesting how people love to venerate icons, things, images. Oh, but if it is, and if, you know, there's people today who venerate that. They'll sit and they'll pray to this cloth. They'll go in Israel and they'll go in a church where something happened. They'll start praying to the holy site. Oh, this is the tomb. Let's start praying to this tomb. Ridiculous. Idolatrous. You know, it's in dispute whether one site in the city of Jerusalem is the burial place and the crucifixion spot of Jesus, or another place outside the city of Jerusalem. It's in dispute. There's scholars on both sides, and there's evidence that is continually weighed. You know what? I've read all the evidence. I've taken the time because I'm interested a little bit in archaeology, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where Jesus died. It doesn't matter where Jesus rose. It matters that Jesus died, and that he rose, and that he is alive. And I thank God we don't know where very many places were. Because again, we would be prone to worship those places. But they buried him. They returned and presented prepared spices and fragrant oils. They rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, on the first day of the week, and we can't finish the chapter, but we have 10 minutes to go to maybe 12 verses. That's really the part we want to break. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, a stone weighing approximately two tons. If you make it with us on this tour to Jerusalem, we're going to take you to a place just behind the Moriah Hotel, close to the King David Hotel, in the Valley of Gehenna in Jerusalem, overlooking the old walls, where there is an ancient tomb with the stone, the rolling stone, still in, intact. 
and they have recently unearthed it. So you can see what an ancient tomb was like with the stone there and sort of get an idea of how massive this thing was. It's not a little slab like some of the movies show. It's this huge two-ton stone. And they saw that the stone was rolled away. They went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That's good news. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by in shining garments. And they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth and said to them, they said, that's these two people, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day he must rise again. Now, what if this were an actual newspaper article? Dateline Jerusalem. On the eve of the annual celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, the one million inhabitants of this city were shocked by the announcement that a body identified as that of Jesus was found in a long-neglected tomb just outside the boundary of the city. Rumors had been circulating the last week that a very important discovery was about to be announced. The news, however, far outstrips all of our wildest guesses. The initial reaction of Christians here and around the world has been one of astonishment, bewilderment, and defensive disbelief. We will have to wait and see just what effective effect this discovery will have on this 2,000-year-old religion. To the mind of the unbelieving writer, it appears that Christianity will have to take its place on the same level with the other religions of the world. No longer can its followers claim that unlike other religions, the tomb of its founder is empty. Evidently, a 2,000-year-old lie has come to an end. Now, this is not a real article. It's fictitious. But if it were true that the body of Jesus of Nazareth was found, then as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, you are of all people in the world the most miserable because you've been believing a lie. But Jesus Christ has basically three major credentials. Number one, his impact upon history. Number two, fulfilled prophecy concerning him. And number three, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Even Josephus, the non-believing Jewish historian hired by the Romans, speaks of Jesus and said in his writings he had risen from the dead. He said that. He attested to it. And there are other, other sources. And actually, we'll go on and kind of uh, get a feel for it as we go. Now, it says on the first day of the week, it was very early in the morning, they and certain women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. These poor gals probably didn't get any sleep that night, tossing and turning the one they loved. They didn't have time to prepare his body. They, didn't, they wanted to treat him kindly like it was the custom of the Jews to do. They didn't have the time to do it. So they got up early. They made their way to the tomb. It must have been not far. Being the Sabbath, the law restricted them from walking over two-thirds of a mile. Very early in the morning, the shadows are still overwhelming the city. They came. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. What did they expect to find when they got there? Well, they expected to find a tomb with a stone in front of it, right? That's how they left it. The Romans put a stone across it, sealed it with a Roman seal, guarded it with soldiers. 
That's what they expected to find. One of the other Gospels say that as they're going to the tomb, they're wondering, man, how are they going to roll away the stone? How are we going to roll away the stone? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a tough problem. But it seems that love doesn't really get into those questions. You know, you just you want to get there. You know how it is if you've lost a loved one, you want to visit their grave. People often do that because that's the last contact they have with that loved one. But they come and the stone is gone. John's gospel doesn't say the stone was rolled. The word is used in the Greek arrow, which means to pick up and toss away. A stone that is two tons in front of the tomb that held Jesus was not a barrier for Jesus. Don't picture Jesus going, Oh, I wish I had some help. Get a few angels here. That two-ton stone was a pebble compared to the rock of ages who had risen from the dead. The tomb was empty. And these messengers say, what are you doing here? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen from the dead. Don't you remember he told you all about it before he left? saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them. I love this. Women were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Where were these brave apostles, these guys, especially Peter? Count on me, Lord, I'll always be there. Not. But these women are the first to get the news. And they told these things to the apostles, and their words, get this, their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. The disciples were not predisposed to the resurrection. I've read certain accounts that try to explain away the resurrection, saying, well, the disciples were wishing for a resurrection. They really expected one. They were deluded mentally and uh, they were predisposed to a resurrection. Really? Then why did they not believe the women when they said, the stone has been rolled away. He's not in the tomb. Oh, right. Oh, you know, you can imagine them talking, can't you? Oh, these women. Tears in their eyes, early in the morning, emotionally distraught. They, they're nuts. Like poor old Helen Hayes, the first time she cooked Thanksgiving for her family, she announced to her husband and her son, said, the turkey is now ready, but it's a warning. This is the first time I've ever made a Thanksgiving dinner with turkey and all of the uh, stuffing and all of the accessories and accoutrements of it. So it's the first time. Now, if, if it doesn't turn out right, I don't want to hear a peep from either one of you guys we're just going to go out and eat, all right? He nodded. When she came back from the kitchen into the dining room, there was her husband and her son dressed in their coats and their hats. <laughs> Poor Helen Hayes. They just know, knew you know, that she'd blow it. And uh, 
these disciples, the women tell them, yeah, all right, let's get our coats and our hats on. They did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. Peter was the kind of a guy, I think, that had to mull it around a little bit in his mind. He didn't believe it first, but he got to thinking, mulling it around. Now, John, in his gospel, says that both John and Peter ran to the tomb. John outran Peter, something John would write in his writings. <laughs> None of the other gospel writers mention this. It mentions that Peter looked in. It mentions that John looked in from the outside and he believed, not Peter. Again, something John would write. Peter was a little slower, a little less mental acumen and spiritual insight. But eventually he did believe. He departed. He marveled to himself what things had happened. Now, before we close, and we're uh, essentially done, I just want to kind of run down quickly the excuses that people have for the resurrection because it's important. The resurrection is the foundation stone of the church. Every sermon that was preached in the book of Acts had as its central theme, Jesus risen from the dead. Excuse number one, the disciples stole the body. That is a very common, it's still written about in many books, uh, the ancient Jews and many of the modern Jewish people say, well, the disciples stole the body. Oh, did they really? Well, as I read the manuscripts, where were the disciples? They were hidden in a room with the doors what? Open? Locked. Why? For fear of the Jews. They were afraid. They were in no mood, were they, to surround a Roman guard between 10 and 16 well-armed men who under law could be killed if they fell asleep under Roman duty or let the seal of a tomb break. Oh, well, the guards fell asleep. Then they stole the body. Oh, really? Don't you think that a few disciples tiptoeing around guards, moving a two-ton stone? <laughs> now, I've heard of deep sleep, but they'd wake up. Then, if... The disciples stole the body. How do you psychologically explain the martyrdom of all of the apostles? You could get any good psychologist or psychiatrist who would say, oh, you'd have maybe one deluded person be able to go through with it, but not all of them. And virtually every one died a martyr's death, was killed, some of them brutally. Matthew had his brains dashed out in Ethiopia with the Fuller's Club because he wouldn't deny the resurrection. Person after person was martyred. It's impossible unless they all believe that it really happened. Okay, excuse number two, the Jews stole the body. Now think about that. If the Jews did steal the body, you know, why would they steal the body in the first place? Let's say they did. Let's just say they stole the body, got rid of it. So the disciples would think, you know, Jesus rose. Well, the disciples in the book of Acts invade Jerusalem, go into the courts of the temple, tell thousands of people Jesus is risen from the dead, and thousands of them are converted to the Christian faith. That upsets the Jewish leaders. 
If the Jewish leader stole the body, habeas corpus, produce the body. Say, here's the body. You're wrong. We've got it. Christianity is over. Excuse number three, they went to the wrong tomb. You see, it was early. Women did have tears in their eyes. They were emotionally distraught, not being able to distinguish one tomb from another. However, uh, because uh, Jerusalem is a necropolis in many places, there are tombs everywhere, they didn't know which tomb was which. They went to the wrong tomb that hadn't been used yet. The tomb was open. It was empty. Well, if the tomb was the wrong tomb, that means when the women went to tell the disciples that the disciples also went to the wrong tomb that happened to have grave clothes lying in it, And that also means that the Sanhedrin went to the wrong tomb. And that means that Joseph of Arimathea went to the wrong tomb as well. All I have to do is get Joseph and Nicodemus. They put him in there. It was Joseph's tomb. And let's not forget the angels. They were sitting on the wrong tomb the whole time. (laughs) A humorous excuse is the swoon theory. They say, well, Jesus didn't really die He appeared dead. He was mostly dead. (laughs) Therefore, he didn't resurrect, but he resuscitated. And this is their explanation. They say, well, you see, medical science being as primitive as it was back then, they thought Jesus died, and the loss of blood and all caused him to faint. And though there was still a heartbeat, they took him off the cross and they put him in that tomb. And the dampness of the tomb served to revive him. And the aloes and the spices served to revive him. And he was able to get up. Really? Being flogged by a Roman lictor, 39 lashes, crown of thorns in your head, spikes in your wrist, a spear in your side where blood and water comes out. Let's just say you're barely alive. How are you going to unwrap those bandages that are all the way from your ankles over your arms or up to your armpit, and then your arms are wrapped closely around that. And then have the strength to move a two-ton stone, get out past the Roman guard, boys, excuse me, and then have enough strength to walk several miles on it. He walked toward Emmaus, the scripture says. Well, then there's the hallucination theory. Oh, the disciples hallucinated. They really thought they saw Jesus, but it was simply a hallucination. Really? Any good psychologist and psychiatrist will tell you that hallucinations do not happen corporately. To over 500 people, the scripture says, saw them at one time, and all of the disciples saw them. But they happen singularly and individually to certain kinds of people who are high-strung and emotionally given towards them. But we see that Jesus appeared to people in many different states. The women were mourning. The disciples were astonished and unexpected. Uh, Thomas was doubting and unbelieving, but Jesus appeared to all of them. The best is to, as Simon Greenleaf, once an agnostic and founder of Harvard Law School, to examine the evidence, as he did, and he was converted to Christianity, he saw there is no plausible explanation and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did take place. He's alive. And being alive, being without limits, he can help you in your time of need. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. And he arose from the tomb to secure your salvation. But like William something or other, that pardon 
lies on the desk until it is applied and received. Let's pray. Lord, that stone is not there any longer. It is gone. We don't know which tomb it is, and we don't care. But we do care that you are alive. Our Savior, Jesus, risen from the dead. Thank you, Jesus. But Lord, we realize that tonight there are many stones rolled over the hearts of so many who have hardened their hearts to not receive you. Lord, we believe that you may have brought some into our fellowship tonight. Those who feel alienated and alone from God. Those who need the love and the forgiveness of our Savior. For their sins to be banished away forever. For them to be right with you. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to the hearts that you've already brought here and are already speaking to and have been throughout the service. Lord, that you, by your love, by your grace, would draw them to yourself to come to you by faith like that thief on the cross.